you know Jesus Christ in a saving way, then you know something of his grace and you know something of his peace. And of course, this is going to be very important to these seven churches because they are being persecuted and the persecution is going to get much worse. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've begun a study of the book of Revelation. Last week, Dr. Brogy gave an overview of this book and then began to look at the first few verses in chapter 1. We're in a message entitled, A Message from Heaven, looking at verses 4 to 8 of this chapter. This particular chapter deals specifically with past things. Chapters 2 and 3 will deal with the present, when John, under the power of the Spirit, is writing this book. And chapters 4 through 22 will deal with things yet to come. As we pick up, we see that although the thrust of this book is Jesus Christ, the book actually comes from all three members of the Trinity. Again, you can see this sermon is entitled, A Greeting from Heaven. And there comes a greeting from the Father, Spirit and Son. First, a greeting from God the Father. Let's pick up in verse 4 where we left off last time. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, I recently received a long typed letter and there was no return address on the outside, so I went to the last page, number one, because I don't read unsigned letters, or occasionally someone knows that, and they sign it, but I couldn't read their signature if my life depended on it, and I throw those in the basket. I've learned to do that. That was some good counsel I got 30-some years ago. But I usually go to the signature page if there's no return address. Why? Because it adds meaning to the letter. It adds depth, like who is it that's speaking to me? Well, they were much wiser in the first century because they put it right in the introduction. In the introduction of every letter in the New Testament, you are immediately alerted to who is writing it. And that's helpful. He says in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, when you see the word Asia in the Revelation, don't think of the continent, the Far East Asia that we have today. Asia in the New Testament realm was a province within the Roman Empire. Today, it basically encompasses the country of Turkey. You can see on this map, uh, here is Asia Minor. It's Little Asia, so to speak, uh, as we call it today. And you can see this horseshoe-type shape of seven churches. When we come to chapter 2, we'll start in Ephesus. We'll go to Smyrna, north to Pergamum. Then we'll make our way southeast through Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches, seven real churches. You say, well, why seven? Why not three? Why not 12? Well, we'll explore that. That's an important question. And why these seven? Why not the church at Rome or the church in Jerusalem or that great missionary church, the church at Antioch? God has a reason for that. But the number seven is not by accident either. Because the number seven is used in the Bible, and especially in the revelation of perfection, of completion. Here's just a sample of some of the sevens here in the revelation. We're going to learn of seven churches, seven spirits mentioned uh, four different times, seven lampstands, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven peals of thunder, 7,000 people, seven heads, seven diadems, seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven mountains, seven kings, seven beatitudes, seven I am's. And that's just a small part of it. 
Because many times within a verse, you'll see a seven-part structure. And then sometimes even in the Greek New Testament, there'll be a seven-pointed grammatical structure. I mean, it's seven, 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 all the way through the book. And we will see, God has a reason for that. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, notice, grace to you and peace. These seven churches are recipients of grace and peace from the Father. Notice how the Father is described, who is, and who was, and who is to come. And that famous ironic blessing, you may not recognize it from number six, but virtually everyone in this room has heard it. You know that God's grace and peace is communicated to his people, Israel. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance and give you peace. And if you know Jesus Christ in a saving way, then you know something of his grace and you know something of his peace. And of course, this is going to be very important to these seven churches because they are being persecuted and the persecution is going to get much worse. Now, when you read through Revelation, more is said about the wrath of God in the Revelation than any other book. Sometimes in ignorance, people will say, well, I don't believe the God of the Old Testament, but I believe the God of the New Testament. You ever hear that? They've never read the New Testament, <laughs> especially Revelation. You see more pictures of the wrath of God in this book than in any other book in the Bible. But the Revelation will still show these two words, the grace of God and the peace of God, that epitomizes what God wants his people to know, and even what God wants unbelievers to know, because God will be reaching out to those who have never heard the gospel before during the tribulation to give them a chance to respond. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. So after John identifies himself on the recipients, he gives a description here of God the Father. Remember when Moses met God, uh, God at that burning bush in Exodus 3.14, and he asked God what his name is, and God said, you tell the Hebrew people, I am whom I am. The word I am, Jehovah, or more accurately, scholarly, we'd say Yahweh, describes God's eternal nature. Not I was sends you, not I will be sends you, but I am sends you, the one true eternal God with no beginning or end. Now we are created, and when God creates us, he makes us immortal. That is, he makes us to live forever. But God alone has immortality. God alone has eternality. You and I have a birthday. God had no beginning or end. There was never a time when God did not exist. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, God tells Moses later on that um, he is also the first and the last, and Isaiah will expand on that title. In fact, not only will these descriptions be given to the Father, but they will be given to God the Son. We're going to come to verse 8 in a moment. And there Jesus will say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. This is Jesus talking, who is and who was and who is to come. And when you come to the end of the Revelation where Jesus is speaking again, he will say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And that's important. Because the same terms that are used to describe God the Father are used to describe God the Son. Revelation will do more to affirm the deity of Christ in the skeptic's mind than probably any other single book. And Jesus understood the meaning of the term I am, and the Jews did as well because he said on one occasion before Abraham was born, I am. 
See, Jesus told those Jewish people that day, he was not simply a prophet like the Muslims teach, as Islam affirms, nor are they saying that he was created, that God the Father came down and had an intimate relationship with the Virgin Mary, and then came Jesus, as Mormonism teaches. No, he is the great I am the one with no beginning or end, and they understood his claim because they picked up stones to stone him. Why are you stoning me, he said, for the good deeds I do? No, they said, because you are a blasphemer. You being a man, make yourself out to be God. But what we're going to see is the Son and the Father are described in the same way. Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. So here in verse 4, these descriptions presents God as eternal. He always has been, he always is, and he always will be. But he is also the God of time and space. He is very much present. Now remember, he is right now, and that's going to be important to them. And he's going to show them this, these seven churches, because they are being beaten up. And when you're being persecuted, sometimes your question is asked, where's the Lord? And remember when, where John is. We'll come to it next time in verse 9. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He's ex in exile there. He's being persecuted for his own faith. And so John wants them to understand that God is there. Just as Jesus said, a sparrow cannot fall to the ground apart from his notice. God is there. He is watching in that great Psalm, Psalm 58. David records that God has taken all of our tears and he puts them in a bottle and then he has a book I call the book of tears where he writes about the meaning of those tears. Maybe he'll show it to us someday. It's a vivid portrayal that God knows what is happening in your life, that the trials and the troubles that you may know of today, God is seeing, he is watching. He is the God of grace and he is the God of peace. So there's the greeting from God the Father, but it doesn't stop. We also have a greeting from God the Spirit, a greeting from God the Spirit. Let's read now verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now that's an interesting designation for the Spirit of God. If you're using the New American Standard or the King James or the New King James, you will notice that the word Spirit is capitalized because they take this as a reference to the Holy Spirit, and I think correctly so. Now here's the challenge. We have these ancient manuscripts, some 20,000 that go back to the early days of Christ, and they are unicles. That is, every single word is in capitals. And then in the ninth century on, we have minuscules, which are basically um, manuscripts where you have capitals and lowercase letters. And so there are some places where people debate, well, is this a spirit? And so you will read in some commentaries, these seven spirits are seven angels, but not the Holy Spirit. And I understand why maybe they make that conclusion, because they don't think that there's seven Holy Spirits, but only one. But they miss the point. Now listen, this is a reference to God, the Holy Spirit. The context tells you that. How do you know that? Because throughout the Bible, when God greets us or he gives a benediction, he never combines himself with some human or some angel. 
For instance, typically in Paul's epistles, he'll start, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. And in many of the benedictions, some that are triunity, there'll be a reference to the Father, Son, and Spirit. God never incorporates himself in some blessing, in some benediction, or in some greeting with a human or even the human writer of Scripture. He separates himself. And so in the immediate context, they have a reference to the Father that no one debates and a reference to the Son that no one debates. And in the middle, to have these seven angels also greeting you really goes against the pattern of Scripture. But again, the reason sometimes people are confused on the Revelation, because as I told you, most of the references are from the Old Testament. And this idea of a sevenfold description of the Spirit comes right out of the Old Testament. Put out in the margin there, Isaiah 11 and verse 2. Isaiah 11 and verse 2. And let me read it to you, and you can see on the chart that follows the seven designations of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This, by the way, is a prophecy speaking of the Messiah's life, the Christ's life, and its relationship to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, and he's the Spirit of understanding. He is the Spirit of counsel, and he is the Spirit of strength. He's the Spirit of knowledge, and he's the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so God describes the perfect, perfect nature of God the Spirit in his relationship to the Messiah in a sevenfold way. Likewise, the prophet Zechariah uses a, very, uses a very similar description to help us to understand the person and work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this from Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah has a vision, and an angel of God asks him this question What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand. All of gold with its bowl on the top of, of it. And its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which were on top of it. Also two olive trees by it. One on the right side in the, of the bowl and the other on the left side. It's left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said, Do you not know what these are? Alas, I said, No, my Lord. So the angel answers him here in Zechariah 4 and verse 6. Listen to it. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The purpose of the vision, if you know the passage, as seen in the seven lamps and these seven spouts and these two olive trees, is to show that the Messiah would have the Holy Spirit's enablement without any restraint. Israel also is told in this passage that she too can know the power of the Holy Spirit. And so God uses this Old Testament imagery to describe the perfect completeness of the Spirit of God in this sevenfold nature. In fact, it's further defined in Zechariah in verse 10, and that the eyes of the Lord which move to and fro through the whole lamps are symbolic of the, through the whole world are symbolic of the seven lamps. But here's the point. Don't miss this. Don't get lost in this theology. What God wants his people to know is that, that we don't believe in seven Holy Spirits, not one, two, three, four, five. There's not seven Holy Spirits. There is one Holy Spirit. But the number seven we're going to see in the Revelation is a number of completeness. And he wants these people to know who are suffering that the Spirit of God from heaven as a member of the triune God is greeting them and telling them 
that he too is going to be there and he is going to enable them and empower them. And when we come to the seven churches, we're going to see this same reference unfolded and we will see how God applies it to his people. So hold on to that. Not by might, not by power, but he will want them to know, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So there's this greeting from the Father. There's this greeting from the Spirit. Third, there's a greeting from God the Son. Now, it's kind of a different order. Typically, Father, Son, Spirit in the Bible when God greets us or gives a benediction. But here, Father, Spirit, Son. Why? Because as we're going to see in the Revelation, this book is about Jesus. He is the hero, and actually most of what is all in chapter 1 is all about the Lord Jesus. And so he puts great emphasis on the second person of the Trinity here in this unveiling. Now notice first how he is described in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Some of your translations say the faithful preacher or you could render it the faithful prophet. John will identify in the Revelation the three offices that the Old Testament tells us that the Christ or the Messiah will fill. When Messiah comes, the prophets wrote, he will be prophet, priest, and king. And so, one, he is a faithful witness. He is a prophet. He is a speaker. He speaks truth. Uh, And by the way, remember in the Acts of the Apostles, in Acts 3, When Peter gives his second sermon, he quotes this book, uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Listen to this. Moses wrote, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. There's going to be similarities between Moses and the Messiah. From among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And so remember, in the Gospels, they say, are you the prophet or should we expect someone else to come? Not a prophet, but the prophet. When Peter stands up in Acts 3, he quotes Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15, and he applies it to the Lord Jesus. In Acts 7, in that fantastic sermon of the entire Old Testament. And if you're new to the faith and you don't know your Bible very well and you want to get a handle on the Old Testament, just study Acts 7 because it will give you an overview of the entire Old Testament. And right before they stone Stephen to death, he gives this fantastic sermon and he says in Acts 7, 37, this is the, this is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. And so they recognize this. Who else should we go to, Peter will say? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus Christ is that prophet. He is the Lord of history. The spirit of prophecy, John will write, is all about Jesus. He didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill it. He is the Lord of prophecy. He is the faithful witness. And there is coming a day when, like all the other prophets who they stoned or killed, Israel will listen to him. That's what Moses said. Hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen in a wholesale way. Notice the second description of Jesus in verse 5. He is the firstborn of the dead. This simply means that he is the very first to come out of the grave in a resurrection body. Now, the word firstborn is a word in the New Testament that speaks of supremacy. And Jesus shows his supremacy over the grave. Now, this is confusing to some because they say, well, there's other people who are raised from the dead. Well, actually eight to be specific in the Bible. Here's a chart of them. Remember Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. Then his predecessor, Elisha, 
raise the Shunammite woman's son. And then if you remember, there was a man who is thrown into Elisha's grave. And as soon as he touches Elisha's bones, he comes back to life. He's raised from the dead. Jesus, if you remember, raised the uh, widow of Nain's son. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. Most famously, most of us know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Peter raised a woman by the name of Tabitha, also nicknamed Dorcas from the dead. And Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Eight resurrections in the Bible. But all eight of these eventually got old or sick again. The Bible doesn't tell us. And they're buried in some grave over there in Israel. But Jesus, to use Paul's words, was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the firstborn of the dead because all those people were raised to life. Jesus was resurrected to life. He was the first one ever to come out of the grave in a resurrected body. And John is going to want you to see him in his resurrection body here in the first chapter. And by the time you are done, you will have, if you don't already, a different perspective of Jesus. John laid his head on the breast of the Lord Jesus there in the upper room for the Last Supper. He was the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. His uh, half-cousin, so to speak, we know from the Scriptures, probably grew up with him. They were either playmates or he was like an uncle to him, and they had a close relationship. But John will fall down like a dead man when he sees Jesus in his glorified body. Notice also in verse 5, he is further described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now the world and its rulers do not recognize that Yeshua is the ruler of the kings of the earth, but he is. They do not recognize Jesus as king, but that is our confession as Christians, that he is king. And that's how Messiah is described in the Bible. Think about it. In Psalm 24, he's called the king of glory. In Daniel 4, we studied it. Christ is called the king of heaven. At his birth in Matthew 2, where is he who is born king of the Jews? In John 1, he's called the king of Israel. In 1 Timothy 1, he's called the king of the ages. In Revelation, the 15th chapter, he's called the king of the saints. In Revelation 19 and verse 16, he's called the king of kings. Now, when you look around, it doesn't appear that Jesus is reigning. But the Bible teaches he will reign sovereignly while he is in control in heaven. He is coming again and he will literally reign upon the earth. And these dear Christian brothers who say that the church has replaced Israel, that we're the new Israel, that Jesus is not actually going to come to the Mount of Olives and put his feet on it and rule and reign here for a thousand years, spiritualize the scripture. Do you remember what the angel Gabriel told Mary at the birth of Jesus? When she finds out she is pregnant by the Spirit and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That never happens yet, but it's going to happen. And we believe it by faith, not because we feel it, but because God says it. But the Bible is clear that even now, behind the great movements of history, there is one who is ruling and there is reigning. John Revelation chapter 6, John writes these words. There's coming a day when the peoples of this world will recognize it. Listen to what is going to happen during that seven-year period. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They said to the mountains and to the rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. They recognize that what is happening is happening by the hand of Jesus. Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And so the King of kings, the ruler of the kings of this earth, is going to come again. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And John's going to unfold this for us. This is just the introduction. But He's also our Savior. Look further into verse 5. To Him who loves us and released us from, uh, from our sins by his blood. Now, some of your translations put it to him who loved us, past tense, and released us, past tense. But that's not in a single Greek manuscript. And the reason some translations do that is because it is improper English to mix a present tense with a past tense. And if you had real English... Uh, and I only had one real English teacher in school. Her name was Mrs. Ryan. We called her Rat Ryan. I shouldn't say that, but that's what we called her. She was 91 years old. There was no mandatory retirement, and I'm glad she was still moving. And she taught me at least a little English. It helped me when I got to the seminary. But she would put red ink all over your paper if you mix a past with a present or a future with a past or whatever. No, you don't do that in proper English. And so some, following rules of grammar put two past tenses. But as in the New American Standard here, it's so precise. The first word is present. Notice he loves us. And the second word is he released us. Now that's important. Very often when we think of the love of God, we think of it in the past. For God so loved the world. Or Paul will say that he loved us and gave himself for us. And that's important to recognize. But it is equally important to recognize that God is actively loving you. That whatever circumstances you are going through today, whatever people may have done to you and even abused you, God is actively loving you. You say, I don't feel that. Look, I don't see visibly with my eyes that he is the ruler of the kings of the earth, but by faith, because God says it, I believe it. And because by faith, God says he is actively loving me, I believe it. Because faith is not a feeling. It is built on the word of God. So understand that. And even if you can't fully conceive that, just look at this past love. That God demonstrated his love for you and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not to mention, if you have been saved, the love of the Holy Spirit has been poured out into your heart. But the verb is at present tense because God is describing the fact that he is constantly, continually, forever loving you. And that's important for these Christians especially to know because they are under persecution and God wants them to know I'm very much in tune to what is happening in your life. Just like those Christians in the first century who are being persecuted for their faith, we in the 21st century are no less loved by Jesus Christ. Whether we face similar persecution or even in the middle of uncertain times such as the coronavirus, God wants us to know He is still in control and He loves us with an everlasting love. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, there's now no better time. Allow us to send you a free pamphlet and video on DVD entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? 
Simply call 877-787-7478 and ask for Would You Like God as Your Friend? This package is absolutely free and made possible by supporters of this ministry. And to listen again to today's study entitled, A Message from Heaven, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also get a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV2. Join us tomorrow as we continue our look at a message from heaven and search the scriptures.